Uh, Father, thank you for your grace here and the opportunities that we've had now for just under two years to study and to be part of a body that wants to study. Thank you for that grace, Father. Thank you for the growth. Thank you for the encouraging words of support and prayer for the provision that makes our meetings possible. Thank you, Father, for just keeping us sustained and moving ahead. And we expect that that support, that your grace is evidence that the teaching of your word is near and dear to your heart, to your purpose. We do this, Father, for you and for those who know you. Father, that's your calling on our church, and we thank you for that too. And now we open the Bible again after a break, and we look forward, Father, to what you'll show us tonight. Um, Let the words that I speak, Father, be made clearer and truer in the hearts of those who hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's kind of remember where we've been, uh, most recently anyway, our last study a couple weeks back. We were moving into the mid-tribulation period of our study. If you remember mid-trib, as I'm going to start calling it in an abbreviated form. Mid-tribulation is the chapters of this book that correspond to 11 through 14. So in chapters 11 through 14, you cover events that take place in and around the three and a half year mark of the seven year tribulation. And each chapter is a a piece of a puzzle that when we start to put them all together, they're gonna reveal different aspects of events that mark this important dividing moment in the seven years. It's just so much that goes on at the midpoint. And so much of that is so central to the whole purpose of uh, tribulation overall that you have to slow down and look at it the way the book does. So that's why this section exists. This chart behind me, of course, is a general overview of of, uh, what we've seen so far in the judgments of tribulation. We've seen seal judgments, trumpet judgments up and through the last of those. We've paused now from all of that into the mid-trib period, then we'll pick up again at the end with the remaining judgments. Last time we studied in chapter 11. In chapter 11, this is a look at the first half of tribulation. In, in chapter 11, which is the chapter, the first of the mid-trib chapters, the first that takes us out of the, the stream of activity in the first half, and that's where we studied the two men who come prophesying to the world, the two witnesses we typically call them. They condemn the world for their sin, and they bring a series of great disasters that mirror the judgments that we see in the first half of tribulation. So what we learned in chapter 11 was even though before that chapter we hadn't heard of these guys, and we were studying about other things, what we learned is they'd been here the whole time. They'd been working alongside everything else we already heard and prophesying, and that's why I said they effectively become the narrators for God in explaining to the world what all of the disasters and destruction mean because they wouldn't have been understandable otherwise for the most part. So as a result, the world connects these men with those disasters in such a way that they really want to see these guys dead. But God has not allowed them to die until the midpoint of tribulation when they finally are killed and then the world celebrates. We are told in chapter 11 that a beast is able to overpower them, but that just raises a question, how did the beast gain the ability to defeat God's anointed? Well, you don't get that in chapter 11. The detail's coming later. We won't get it tonight either, but we'll get it next week. Meanwhile, that chapter ended with a preview of the end of the tribulation to come. And that feature, that is throwing a little preview out like that, that's gonna be a feature we see more commonly as we move toward the end of this uh, period of time, toward the end of the tribulation. All right, so the events of mid-tribulation are the final act, as it were, of this age, And they set in motion the events that bring this age to an end. And that's why that preview was thrown in uh, last week. It's just to connect for us the fact that, hey, you're seeing things here that are just the very end. They're about to set off the last stage of events. All right, that's what we've done, uh, what we've done. Now let's get into the next mid-trib chapter. And with it, we get a new piece of this puzzle. So the topic changes, chapter 12 now. And we'll read verses one through five. John writes, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads were seven diadems and his tail 
swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. All right, so the 12th chapter opens with two signs. And these two signs are working together to tell a single story about something that's happening at the mid-tribulation point. Now, before we look at what the signs are, I have to make sure that we all understand how you approach signs. We've done a little of this in the past. This is an extension of that. I want to add some other detail to how we handle signs in Scripture. And I'm just going to use a simple comparison. A sign, by definition, is a symbol that stands for something, right? That stands for something that in the real world is altogether different. Signs are just a convenient tool. They, they teach us something about the thing they represent. So let me give an example. You might drive in on a road to our city and see this sign by the side of the road, San Antonio City Limits, right? And it has the name of the city on it. And in our case, San Antonio is the name. And then it has the city's population underneath it. All right, now, that little sign that we've seen before that you all know very well that is, this will surprise you, I'm sure, but that is not the actual city. Uh, it is far smaller than the actual city. Uh, it does not resemble the city whatsoever. Uh, you can't live in the sign. You can't uh, make the sign your home, right? If, if you wanted to see what the actual city looks like, it's more like this. Now, I'm being silly, but I'm also making a point that as silly as that is, you'll find in biblical interpretation, people make that mistake, that exact mistake frequently. Bible students can make the mistake of conflating the sign with the, with the true physical reality that it represents. And in doing so, they fail to translate the sign into something else that it stands for. And if you do that, you misinterpret the scripture. Imagine the mistake you would make if for some reason, you assumed the sign by the side of the road was the actual city. You know, you'd be saying, I, I just, I heard so much about it, but it's not really that impressive. <laughs> you'd make some serious errors, okay? Well, back to chapter 12. In the opening of chapter 12, we're given two signs, and we know they're signs because John says they're signs, all right? So we have to translate the signs into something real, and that begs a question, how do I know what the translation should be? That is, what is the sign a picture of? And that just comes from careful observation of the text, right, from looking at the context. Now in this case, we have two signs. We have a, a woman with child and we have a dragon, okay? The woman represents something, the child represents something, all right? And you have to keep, and, and the dragon represents something. And you have to keep an understanding of what they represent. You can't just transfer the literal. The woman is not a picture of a woman. The child is not a picture of a child, okay? They picture something, otherwise they're just literal. They're not signs anymore. All right, so in verse five, let's start with the child. In verse five, we're told the child is a son who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, the reference to ruling with a rod of iron comes from Psalm 2. So we have a child with a rod of iron. Let's look at Psalm 2. If you're laughing at my graphics, it's conditioned for being thrown out of the classroom. Just kidding. <laughs> Psalm 2, 7. That's meant to be funny. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, it, it was never a surprise to you to learn that the picture of the child uh, is a picture of Messiah, right? So knowing that the child is a picture of Messiah is not the hard part. The point is this. The sign of the child does not represent the baby Jesus. The sign does not represent the baby Jesus because the baby Jesus never sat on a throne and the baby Jesus never had a scepter in his hand and the baby Jesus didn't rule the nations. It's not the baby Jesus, it is the Messiah ruling that is being pictured there, okay? The Messiah ruling is where the picture stays or where it lands because it puts him in a throne at the end and puts him by the right hand of the Father. That's post-infancy, okay? Now, I'm kind of beating that horse a little bit, and I get it, but here's why we're beating that horse. 
Because as easy as the child was, and as easy as it might be to mistake the child as the infant, if you don't translate the sign and you just stay with the baby is the baby Jesus, where are you going to go next when you look at the woman? The natural thing to do next is to say, okay, well, the woman must be Mary. And in fact, the Catholic religion portrays Mary in the way of this particular passage. If you've ever seen this picture of Mary, it's a very common, iconic view of Mary as the Catholic religion promotes, right? Look at the description, sun, moon, stars. It's from this chapter, reflecting their inaccurate translation of this text. They think the woman represents Mary because they failed to translate the sign into something. They've just taken it hyper-literally, which would defy John's instructions. He said these are signs, not literal things. All right, so we don't want to make that mistake. So by not making that mistake, we have to do this translation process. The baby is a picture of Christ's ruling. The woman, what does she represent? Well, we go back to context again. Notice the woman is clothed with sun, moon under her feet, and has a crown of 12 stars on her head. All right? So following our rules of interpretation for determining the meaning of symbols, which we've talked about in past weeks, you remember, where's the, where's the first place you go looking for an, an explanation in the Bible for the meaning of those symbols? In the immediate context, in the immediate context, right. We don't find that here. Where's the next place you go? In the book. In other words, the same author. The guy writing that, maybe he said what those meant somewhere else in the same book. We don't find that here either. So that means we go where? And this one's easy. Anywhere else in the Bible, right? And generally speaking, backward in the Bible. And of course, in Revelation, that means everything is before it. So we go back. And in this case, you go all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 37.5, you find the answer to the interpretation. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers and said, lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow down before you to the ground? So Joseph, one of only two men in the Bible that received revelation from God through dreams, uh, Daniel being the other, and by the way, in both cases, both Daniel and Joseph, the dreams are always translated in the same text. So in this case, Joseph's dreams are communicating something about his relationship with his family. And I gave you both of his dreams because they build on one another. That is, in the case of the first part of the dream with the sheaves, you get the sense of what the big picture is. God's showing Joseph that there would be a day to come in which he would have all the power over that family. Of course, we know that that was fulfilled in his time in Egypt. That's when we see it play out. And then that first part of the dream sets that storyline, which of course no one wanted to hear in his family. And then as it moves to the second dream, the storyline is the same. It's just new symbols to say the same thing twice. And what does it say? In that dream, you have sun, moon, and stars. You've moved from agriculture to celestial bodies, but the sun, moon, and stars now all represent things that correspond to the same idea. But in the way that they now are being used, we see their representation by Jacob's interpretation. In other words, Jacob understood it. And he immediately responded, knowing what it meant. And he says, well, I and your mother and your brothers bow down to you. Which means that he interpreted the sun, moon, and stars to represent himself as the sun, his wife as the moon, and the stars as the other brothers of Joseph. And this is the only place in the Bible where these three symbols are being used symbolically and then given to us with a translation. And that's a fundamental rule of interpretation. When the, the Lord wrote the whole book and he knew when he got to the end of it how it was all going to work together and he's just asking you to use your, your noggin and go back through and find those comparisons. That's why they are there. It's not guesswork. There's a reason why there's only one other place to find this so that you wouldn't be confused if there were two. Right? This is the one. And when you look at the translation, it makes perfect sense. In fact, it fits perfectly perfectly 
in the context of Revelation 12. Because what we now have is a biblical interpretation that says the sun and the moon, and now in 12, we have 12 stars, not 11, that reflects the sons of Israel, or simply put, the nation, the nation of Israel. It was 11 stars in Joseph's dream because he was one of the 12 in the dream. It's 12 stars in Revelation 12 because now we're talking about the whole of the nation, all the tribes. All right, so the woman would represent Israel as a nation, and that, by the way, is reinforced by other scripture that represents the nation of Israel as a female, or as a woman. As one simple example, although it's all over the Old Testament, Jeremiah 3.8, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, and yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. So our interpretation fits perfectly. That is to say, a woman with a sun, moon, and stars represents the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, of course, coming from Jacob. And as a woman, it's natural for the nation of Israel to be represented that way. And when you connect that sign, that is of the Messiah as a baby, in this case, and as the woman as Israel, in this case, well, now the the picture just builds because that's a perfect storyline. Israel is the nation that brought forth the Messiah, Now you get why it's not important that it be considered the baby Messiah. It's not about the stage of his life. It's about the mere fact that Israel produced a Messiah. That's the key issue here. Born out of a Jewish family, born out of the family of David, born out of the tribes of of Jacob, etc. Okay? So, our first sign in this story is of Israel producing the Messiah. Next, we turn to the, the third sign of the dragon, And this sign's a little more complex, but following the rules of interpretation gets you to the exact same place, that is, to an answer. And where would you go first to look for an interpretation of the symbols? Back to our rules, in the context, and sure enough, if you go to verse 9, in this passage, you get the answer to what the dragon is. And verse 9, we'll read in a minute, but verse 9 tells us that the dragon is Satan. The serpent of old, it'll say in a minute. So this is, and I'm jumping into that without having read the verse yet because there's there's no need to belabor it. It's clear, it's stated for us, we get it, okay? Going further, this dragon has a tail and that tail sweeps a third of the stars from heaven down to earth. Now, here's where knowing how to use signs really helps. Uh, The dragon is a sign. It's not the literal. Satan is not a dragon, why do you think Satan sometimes is projected or pictured as being red and having a, a forked tail? It's not because of devil ham. Why, why does he look like that? This chapter. There's nowhere else he's said to be red except here. But he's not red, this is a sign. He doesn't have a tail, it's a sign, all right? The dragon has a tail because dragons have tails. But the dragon is a sign. It's not the actual picture of what he looks like, okay? so. The, say, the, the dragon here has a tail for the effect of the storyline, and this tail sweeps, as it were, the stars. All right, so we have to give you know, more interpretation here. What do stars represent when they're used symbolically? Now, we solved this one early in the book. Angels. And the text later confirms it. When you look further down the text, it calls, talks about the devil and his angels. All right, so we have immediate contextual confirmation of that interpretation. So... We have here Satan as the leader of the realm of fallen angels who, as a result of his influence at the time of his fall, swept or we could say recruited or you know, deceived or tempted or whatever, one-third of the angelic realm. This is where you find out, this is where you go to find out that a third of the angelic realm follows Satan, all right? And so... Those demons, which are angel, fallen angels we call demons, represent his army. So in the scene so far, we have two signs. We have one that represents Israel producing the Messiah, another sign that represents the enemy of God, Satan, in his role as the chief accuser, and then Satan as this dragon has some additional details on him, right? We have on this dragon seven heads with crowns, and we have ten horns, All right, before we go any deeper into understanding the picture of Satan, can we already begin to see a narrative emerging from the way the two signs are shown to interact in the early verses of the chapter? 
For example, we have uh, the dragon waiting for the Messiah's birth, so to speak. Well, we know that the Messiah was, a pro- was promised by God for a long period of time. It would be something God would intend to bring, and he, he mentioned it early on. And that Satan was always in opposition to that. Uh, in the literal time of Jesus' first coming, uh, Satan was obviously seeking to interrupt that plan, to stop that plan. Uh, Jesus triumphed ultimately on the cross, and he was caught up to his throne, which is how this story ended. But Satan knows that isn't the end of the story. That is to say, though he missed his chance in, in uh, Messiah's first coming to put an end to Messiah in the way that he thought he was trying to do, now he's trying to do it again at the next coming of Messiah. He hasn't stopped his fight, as it were. So ever since Jesus has left the earth, Satan has had no choice but to direct his attacks elsewhere. I mean, Jesus isn't here right now. So where does he go instead? The symbols in this chapter are setting up a storyline in which we get to see the enemy's tactics, particularly his target, knowing that he is fighting against God, but for now has to direct his attacks at somewhere else. And more specifically, it explains how the enemy's attacks will fundamentally change at mid-trib. That's where this story is going. Let's keep moving, though, and I'm gonna tackle the next part, which is the, the heads and the crowns, which begins to tell the story more deeply. Now, as a good Bible student, you should recognize these symbols, or at least they should sound awfully familiar to you. Ten horns? Where have you seen this? Daniel. Which, anybody wanna guess the chapter in which we saw ten horns? Yep, I know, I'm a terrible teacher. Let's go to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 7. After this I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. When I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of its first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth uttering great boasts. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. All right, this passage is review for us, although from the sound of it, it doesn't seem to be as much review as I had hoped, um, because we studied Daniel 7 earlier in this course, okay, and we studied in that chapter about a beast that came to represent the final Gentile kingdom that will rule this age until Christ's second coming. Okay, remember that? And how did this age begin? The, The fourth kingdom. With Rome, I'm so, not the age, sorry. How did the fourth kingdom begin? The beast is represented first by Rome, the fourth of the four major kingdoms. But the Roman Empire has evolved over its time into something different, something I called an imperialistic democratic alliance. Remember this? It basically represents the way the world has continued to reshape, recombine, and, and spl- uh, split apart the remnants of the Roman Empire. And yet, collectively, those remnants, although they may not all be in the same country, but then nonetheless, collectively, they serve the same purpose of maintaining the age of the Gentiles and preventing Israel from having its kingdom. And eventually, we learned that at the very end of that age, the age we're currently a part of, this fourth kingdom will take the form of a ten-king ruling structure that controls the entire planet. Remember that? So we will eventually get to the point where we have 10 kings ruling the planet. Those 10 kings were represented in Daniel 2 by the 10 toes of the statue at the very end of the statue, right? And they're represented in Daniel 7 by the 10 horns on the beast's head. 10 horns on the beast, 10 horns on the dragon. Okay, I'm starting to see something here. And then later in Daniel 7, we're told that those 10 horns Uh, eventually get joined by an 11th, and then that 11th ruler becomes the most powerful of all of them, and as a result of his rule, three of the first 10 are deposed, done away with, probably because they oppose him, we assume. 
And therefore, at the result, you get a kind of one-man government with seven puppets underneath him. Well, gee, there were seven heads and seven crowns with ten horns. So, and what was that last phrase we saw at the end of what I read in Daniel 7? That this arrangement would be allowed to exist for time, times, and half a time. That's the classic reference to the mid-trib point, to the three-and-a-half-year point. We've noticed in all of the chapters of the mid-trib series in, in Revelation, chapters 11 through 14, in all of those chapters, there's going to be at least one mention of the mid-trib time mark just to tell you this is a mid-trib chapter. This is a mid-trib chapter. This is a mid-trib chapter. Well, here you have Daniel 7 doing the same thing. This is a mid-trib chapter. That is to say you're listening, you're reading something that's corresponding to mid-trib. It's almost like there's been a, a little asterisk put in Daniel 7. It says, see Revelation 12. Because that's exactly what that's for. And now when you go back with this detail to chapter 12 of Revelation, you can apply what you've learned. And what you're realizing now is that the dragon is not meant to simply replicate what you learned in Daniel 7. We don't need to hear it again. We've already heard it. Daniel, uh, uh, Revelation 12 is taking it one step further. That is, it's moving the story one step further. The story in Daniel 7 was you're going to end up with eight guys, one plus seven ruling for three and a half years. What you learn now in this chapter is that the dragon has ten horns because the rule of the world still involves ten kingdoms. Just because the king went away didn't mean we lost his territory. It was still there. But the guy's not there anymore because at mid-trib is the point, Daniel said, three and a half years, mid-trib is the point at which that coup takes place. The one emerges, the eleventh becomes the king of everyone, and the other three are taken away. That all happens at mid-trib. Daniel told us three and a half years. It happens at mid-trib. Follow me? So now all of a sudden I'm left with a world that still has ten kingdoms, i.e. ten horns on the dragon, but now only has seven rulers for those ten kingdoms, seven heads, seven crowns, sharing power over those ten. And what has not been added to the picture yet is that extra guy. We don't see him mentioned in chapter 12 yet. He gets his own chapter, chapter 13. But in chapter 12, what we're learning is the power behind all of this, the dragon. That is, all of these features, the ten, the seven, the ten horns, ten, seven heads, seven crowns on seven, all of those features are coming out of Daniel, but they've all been moved now and dropped onto a dragon, which we know represents Satan, which tells us that those seven leaders are pawns under the control of Satan. They are his heads, and the ten kingdoms that they now rule, those kingdoms belong to Satan. They are his horns. And therefore, Satan controls the kings, and therefore, Satan controls those ten kingdoms, which is simply to say, Satan is the god of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.3, even if our gospel is veiled, Paul says, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. Now that's a true statement even now, but what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 12 is that there comes a point at mid-trib in which Satan takes a very personal involvement in this ruling structure, and chapter 12 is there to see, give us this understanding of who is the God behind it all on earth. A woman, Israel, who created or brought forth a Messiah who ultimately will defeat this dragon, Satan, who controls the world, that battle, long-standing as it has been, now reaches an entirely new peak, a new moment. So while from the beginning the dragon has anticipated the arrival of Messiah and sought to stop the plan, now things at mid-trib change in such a way that the dragon and his tactics and his rule go to a level that has never been seen before on earth. And that's what the rest of this chapter Gives us. And to give you background on that before we look at it, I need to remind you of some things that hopefully you know from Scripture. Starting with Genesis 3.15. When God first announced the plan of the Messiah, he did it in this verse, sometimes known as the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first, that's a Latin way of saying the first gospel. This is the first place in the Bible the gospel is pronounced. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. That is to say, 
to the woman, he said, through you I will bring a Messiah, the seed, and that Messiah will ultimately rectify the problem that we're now facing, a problem that was essentially the result of a, of a bad player, a serpent, who deceived woman and led to the rest. And so when this seed comes, he will ultimately destroy this serpent, but not before the serpent has an opportunity to take a strike at him. But it will not be a deadly strike. His strike on the serpent will be deadly. The, the serpent's strike on him will not be. That one verse presupposes or, or, or uh, prophesies not only the Messiah's coming, but also the fact that there are two comings. Even in that verse, in hindsight, you see the two comings of Christ in just one verse in Genesis 3.15. All right, now, Satan is not omniscient. Satan doesn't know everything. He's wiser than we are by, you know, by far, but doesn't make him omniscient. So he could not know in advance who the Messiah would be. So his plan was to attack at every possible opportunity, beginning with Cain. He didn't know Cain wasn't the Messiah. In fact, woman thought Cain was the Messiah at first, which is why she named him what she did. So Satan corrupted Cain right from the start, hoping that he was ruining the plan of God, and then he had Cain kill Abel just in case it was Abel. And as he finds out later, there comes Seth. So that doesn't stop him. Later, he sends demons to mate with women during the time of Noah, hoping to corrupt humanity in such a way that there would be no possibility of the Messiah being birthed from anyone because everyone would be corrupt by uh, demon possession. But the Lord wipes out that corruption with a flood. And if you keep moving from there, the story of the Bible, fundamentally, is the story of God working to fulfill his promise to bring a Messiah while the enemy is working to do everything he can to corrupt it. That's basically the story of the Bible. And along the way, you see Satan attacking everything and everyone who might seem to him to be important to God's plan for that purpose, as he just tries to catch up with where God is going, figuring it out as he goes. So once God called Abraham out of Ur and said that through him he would bring this seed, well then the enemy now had a new place to focus his anger and attack. It was on Abraham and everyone who comes from Abraham because that seems to be where God is gonna do the work, right? And so as it became clear to Satan that God intended to bring a Messiah through one people, that is through Israel, Israel became enemy number one for Satan. And it's always been that way. The Jews are the world's most persecuted people historically and for this reason, because the enemy is the one driving the persecution, moving the hearts of evil people to do evil things, and he understands that Israel is key to God's plan, at least he did, it, of course, leading up to the first coming of Messiah, and so he's tried to corrupt Israel time and time again. If you wonder why the story in the Old Testament of Israel's history is so replete with idolatry and you know, uh, human sacrifice and you know, corruption at every level and, and one bad thing after another, well, it's human sins, to be sure, but it's the result of an enemy who has made it his intent to corrupt that nation at every turn because the last thing he wanted was the Messiah showing up through them. All right? Nonetheless, Messiah is born because, if you haven't figured out, God's more powerful than Satan. So Messiah is born, and what does Satan immediately do? He sends Herod to go kill all of the children in Bethlehem, right? Every attempt he can. That didn't work, so then he tempts Christ. That didn't work, so then he just keeps trying to provoke Pharisees and others to do something against him. Finally, Judas is op an opportunity. He indwells Judas, bringing Jesus to his death, thinking that must have done it, only to find out later that sealed his own fate, not Jesus's. So verses one through five of chapter 12 are the shortest history of the Bible that you can find in the Bible. Because in effect, they're telling the core of what the Bible is about. They're telling the story of God bringing a Messiah Satan seeking to oppose it. And it started in Genesis 3.15 and it will go until Christ's second coming. In fact, it will go all the way to the end of the kingdom when Satan is finally once and for all judged. So that's the opening of this chapter because that's the background for what comes next. All right? So where we go next is chapter 12, verse six. Now, having handled the background, now we're actually getting into what chapter 12 is actually about. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, now, there's obviously your reference to mid-trib, 1,260 days is three and a half years. So that's our internal clue within this chapter to tell us this is a mid-trib chapter. So something is happening at mid-trib here. What's happening? Well, 
the woman is fleeing into the wilderness. Now, the woman is who? Israel. So the nation as a whole is moving, or some part of it, into the wilderness and to a place of protection, somewhere prepared by God, it says, and she'll be there for three and a half years. So at the midpoint of tribulation, the nation of Israel will be given shelter and nourishment, and they'll be held there for three and a half years. That's the opening part, really, of what we're learning here. Now, we don't know the specific circumstances yet, but that's okay, we can just keep reading. Verse seven, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. They were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan and deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he he has only a short time. All right, now we're getting to the heart of what's going on at the mid-trib moment. John describes that there will be at mid-trib, that is at the three and a half year point of the seven years, there will be a great war in heaven. And in this war, Michael, the chief angel, will wage war with his angels against Satan and his demons. And that war will result in Satan being thrown down to the earth. Now, when you first hear that, you might think, well, that's a reference to his initial rebellion and fall. As if there's a retelling here of the story of Satan's fall. But the problem with that interpretation is we know that that happened a long time ago, obviously, at the very beginning, back when the garden was still the garden and Adam and woman were still Adam and woman. She didn't become Eve until after the fall. So... This is now happening, we're told, at the three and a half year point of tribulation. That's future from us. So the story of this war cannot be the story of the history. It's gotta be a story of something in that future moment. So this is a different war. Not the war of his original fall, but something else. And as the rest of the passage explains, this something else is the moment that Satan and his demonic realm, his demonic horde, lose access to the throne of God forevermore. Since his original fall, He and his demons have maintained access to God and to the heavenly realm, at least in some sense. Notice in verse 10, John says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us of our sin before God, day and night. Other scripture confirms this. You might know uh, very well Job, Job 1, where we hear of this moment where It says this, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The sons of God means the angels of God. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord saying, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Well, if he's saying that while he's in the presence of God, then clearly he moves between the two realms. This is clearly after his fall. So what Revelation has told us, what Job says, is Satan Having fallen from his position in heaven, from his role as the covering cherub in the Holy of Holies, he's now outside the service of God. He's a rebellion. He's in rebellion with God, but somehow he still can get into the throne room of God, and when he's there, he takes opportunity to accuse the brethren. And I think about that sometimes, because every time we sin, what that means, I think, is that we just gave something to Satan that he can declare against us before God, necessitating, I guess, that God then defend his assignment of grace to us. You know, it kind of almost feels worse to sin when you think that every time you sin, you give something to the enemy that God has to then get up there and say, look, I know he did that, I know, but I've forgiven him, it's okay. I know it's the hundredth time he's done it, but it's okay, I forgive him. You know what I'm saying, right? There's that sense that, gee, maybe I shouldn't keep giving the enemy anything more to talk about on my behalf. Not that it's changing my status before God, thankfully, but... That doesn't mean it should continue, right? All right, back at mid-trib. At mid-trib, this access that he's enjoyed for so long changes. And for the first time in history, he is barred from heaven forever. We're told that the angel Michael and his angels with him initiate this war. So God picks the timing and decides at mid-trib, okay, we've had it up to here, time to get rid of him. 
Next, next phase of the plan. And when the tor- this war takes place, the good guys win. And Satan and demons are kicked out of heaven. They're sent to the only other place they can go, which is to the earth. Now, let me just, this is a simple aside. It's, it, it may not be worth anything. But if, if Satan can go anywhere in the universe, and he can't go to heaven, but he can go anywhere in the universe, and he comes here and never goes anywhere else, that's one of many ways I could prove to you that there is nowhere else. There's nothing else out there. I mean, nothing that matters, right? No, no other beings, no other worlds, no other nothing. He's always here because this is the only place that matters, right? If he had anywhere else he could go, why is he picking this place? All right. Up to this point in history, Satan's dominion has been the earth, yes. Remember Job, I've been going to and fro the earth. But he also had access to heaven. And here's what I think that did for him psychologically, for lack of a better term. It made him feel as though he wasn't defeated yet. It gave him hope that there was still some way he could regain his position in heaven and depose God. It didn't feel as if he had lost his chance as long as heaven was still accessible. He was just still fighting to get back to what he wanted or to defeat God in some respect. Job 1 says he's roaming back and forth. All right? So it gave him, I think, a way of self-deception, of, of thinking himself still in a position to win. But in verse 10, John hears a declaration from heaven that now the time has ended for that, and he will be exposed, from, he, that this expulsion, he'll be expelled from heaven, this expulsion of Satan has now come, and the effect it has on him is to put him on alert that what he has feared has finally come, that the heavens now celebrate his impending doom. And the Bible says that he now knows his time is short. So what that would suggest is, once that barrier is, is put in place, he realizes things have moved now to the last stage of whatever God is doing. He didn't see it coming, he's not omniscient, but once he sees that sign, he now is in a position to understand what it means. Heaven is certainly glad to be rid of him. They're joy, joyously you know, saying, finally, we don't have to deal with that guy anymore. Uh, But then he says, heaven, while it's rejoicing, looks down on the earth and says, woe to the earth. You now get him, and he can't leave. Now, you might ask, well, why didn't God do this a long time ago? Well, the answer is self-evident, right? As soon as Satan is barred from heaven, it causes him to react with this greater rage and greater concern uh, and so it's like grace to the world that God has held back on that expulsion till the very last moment so that he doesn't provoke Satan any sooner than necessary. Um, and when he is finally expelled, it causes him to react like a cornered animal, something desperate to save its life and with nothing to lose. And with fear and rage, he lashes out at anyone on earth who is aligned with God against him. And he takes out his anger in this realm because he has no other. And as a result, the earth now suffers under his rash response at a level that's never been seen before. And had the Lord sent him out of heaven sooner just to make heaven a nicer place, it would have been much worse for the earth. So in a sense, the saints, though we've always endured Satan's attack, we don't understand how bad it could be if he had nothing else to do. All right, now let's reverse that question. Why does he do it then? I mean, we understand why he may not have done it already, grace, but why do it at all then? Why do it at the three and a half year point? Why subject even the the earth to even three and a half years of this? Because the Lord wants Satan to play an important role in the events that conclude the tribulation, and in order to get Satan to play his part as planned, the Lord has to confine him to the earth. So we'll find out what that part looks like as we get deeper into the mid-trib chapters. For now, let's get back to this story. So God is going to bar Satan from heaven at mid-trib, and at that point, he comes to earth bringing great misery, and that rage goes against specifically those who believe in Jesus and those who are aligned with the people of God generally. And so this initiates a wave of martyrdom. All those people you saw getting saved in the first half of tribulation as a result of the 144,000, they now are the targets primarily for what Satan does as he gets into this new phase. Again, the enemies always oppose those who followed Messiah or were part of Israel generally because of what it meant to him and the plan of God against him. But now at mid-trib, his vitriol reaches new heights, okay? 
And that's why the Lord makes a provision for Israel to escape to a place of protection for three and a half years. All right, so now you're putting the two pieces together, right? So, as we saw in verse six, the woman, Israel, flees into a desert space of some kind to escape the rage of the dragon. The fleeing of Israel at mid-trib for 1260 days matches the casting down of Satan at mid-trib where he will then do what he does for three and a half years. It's all lining up, all right? So there's an intentional lining up and it is so aligned that it has to happen almost in the same second. So what is the provision of safety that Israel enjoys? for the second half of tribulation. What is this provision? Okay, that's where we go next. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. All right, so finishing this thought and then we'll get to the next. So he's cast out and he goes after those who support God. And in this case, it starts here with him not only going after the Christian, those who know God, know Christ and are martyred, but also going after Israel generally because of their plan of, uh, their uh, role in the plan of God. Again, not a new phenomenon, just at a new level. And the, the problem is this. You have those among the Jews of this time who have come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. The principal group, of course, was the 144,000. But it didn't stop with them. They found other Jews who also believed, as well as other Gentiles who would believe. God has promised from the beginning that there will always be a believing element within Israel. We call it the remnant. Biblically, that's the term. Remnant refers to those within the nation of Israel who believe. We would call them believers today, or the saved, if you will. And there are always on earth believing Jews since the time of Abraham until now, and that will always be the case until the end of this age. And today, if you're a believing Jew, we call you a Christian, Coming out of a Jewish family, believing in Jesus, you join the church. But from God's point of view, that is still proof of his faithfulness to Israel that he's still saving Jews, okay? In this day, he starts again with 144,000 because he will always have believing Jews on earth. But then after the 144, as they save others, you get a community now of believing Jews on earth. And for Satan, that's target number one for anyone that he's going to go after. If God was to allow Satan in this three and a half years of tremendous rage and attack, if he was to allow Satan the success Satan wanted and let him attack those Jews without any defense, then the risk is that Satan might succeed in wiping out the last living Jew on earth. And if he could have done that, it would be contrary to God's promises. So God uses a way here of preserving the remnant of Israel during the time of the second half of tribulation. Meanwhile, in verse 14, you have symbols here that are being used to describe how the Lord protects his people. The woman receiving wings of an eagle so she can fly, as it were, into the wilderness for those three and a half years. And there she's protected, it says, in the presence of the serpent. So the flight to protection is this provision made possible by an eagle. Now we know the woman's a sign, means Israel. We know the eagle has to be a sign because you can't put a nation of people on top of a bird. So it's a picture of something. And it's called the great eagle. So clearly there's some eagle here that we should have already been familiar with. Again, if you could connect some dots from your prior studies, you'd see a pattern emerging. Israel fleeing from an oppressor into the wilderness. Gee, does that sound familiar? All right. And if you go back to the story of the Exodus, you see this description of their flight. Exodus 19.3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. All right, we know how they actually traveled. Supernaturally, in other words. They walked seven days nonstop, day and night, according to the text of of, uh, Exodus. So for seven straight days, a group of people walked day and night. They had a cloud in the day to keep them from the sun. They had a pillar of fire at night so they could see where they were going at night. And they walked for seven days straight, about 200 and something miles. 
All right, that took a supernatural effort to get people to walk that far with kids and everything else, right? And that was them being born on eagles' wings. That's what God's referring to here. You know how you were miraculously delivered to this place. So the symbolism is clear. To be born on eagles' wings into a desert flight is a picture of God providing a supernatural exit for the people of God. And then when they arrive at where they're going, it says they are protected in the presence of the serpent. And I think that's an important detail because what it tells us is they're still on earth. Don't confuse this as a picture of them being raptured or moved off the earth because that's not what's happening. They're staying on the earth and the proof of that is they're still in the presence of the serpent who himself can't go anywhere but earth, okay? So that's proof of that they're still on the earth. So where is this place, right? Well, as they're moving there, we get some details that tell us where. First of all, they're in a place where it appears as though the serpent can do something to drown them. It says here that water comes and drowns them, or there's an attempt to drown them, but the ground swallows the water and dries up the land. Now, you could start looking at those as symbols because that's been the pattern up to this point. So you'd be asking, what is the water a picture of? Typically, floods are pictures of armies. So maybe that's what this is a picture of. But the, the problem is there are no clear uh, answers to the symbology here or anywhere else in this context. That is, all these details lining up in one picture. And... The picture seems very literal, especially when you know the place that they go to. So it actually argues that at this point, it's speaking close to literal, not exactly literal. It says here that they, uh, there be a river that comes out of the mouth of the dragon. Well, that's clearly not literal. But what it could be a picture of is a flood of literal water. It just doesn't come out of his mouth. It might come from rain. It might come from something else that he does. And then the earth swallowing it could very easily be a picture of how God uses his ability to change the earth in a way that prevents the flood from succeeding. We don't have a lot of detail beyond that, so we have to be careful about how definitive we are, but I'll show you some pictures here toward the end that give us some support. Now, I said a moment ago that the moment of this flight is timed to mid-trib, as is Satan's departure from heaven, and they're so closely timed, in fact, they're timed almost to the second, that is, The moment of his fall is the moment they have to flee, and if they're even a moment too late, they're not gonna get out. And that's what I was referring to earlier when I said Jesus describes this. In Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get their things out of the house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. All right, this is in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. He's talking about the events of tribulation. And in verse 15, he reaches the point of mid-trib. And that's where we are. And he talks about the abomination of desolation. Daniel mentions that in chapter 9. 27, and we know that's the defining moment at mid-trib, okay? We'll hear about that in chapter 13. Meanwhile, in this chapter, we're told that at that same point, Satan is coming down to the earth, and we know that he'll begin a tremendous persecution. All these things are lining up at the same moment, okay? And Jesus says that will also be the moment that if you are in Jerusalem, and no surprise, Jews are typically in Jerusalem, right? If you're in Jerusalem, You must flee to the wilderness, to the mountains, that is, to the desert mountains, and it will be a flight that can't happen with any delay. Not even to go down from your roof and pull something out of a closet. That takes too long. That shows you how rapidly Satan's arrival will result in immediate attack. That's how quickly he can move with his demons. That's how fast he can bring something to happen. A person who's standing outside your house, uh, you know, wandering down the street doing nothing of anything and a demon enter them and in an instant change their heart and have them initiate an attack. You know, that's what God is, that's what, I'm sorry, Satan is able to do. And there'll be that kind of intensity starting immediately at mid-trib. Now, that flight of Jews will be for those who believe in the testimony of Jesus in Matthew 24. If you're not believing in Jesus as a Jew in that day, you're not reading these words and you're not caring what they say. You're not prepared for that flight. So in that sense, this flight becomes a test of faith 
For those who believe in the word of God and believe in what Jesus has said to be ready to do, they will move and therefore save their lives. And of course, that is the remnant, which is the one we're saying is ushered into the wilderness. It becomes a test of faith in that moment to get out of town so the believing Jews will suddenly leave putting the unbelieving Jews in their back in your river, river mirrors, so to speak, because they're not gonna be moving with them. So it's not all Jews on earth that are moving in this way. It's the believing remnant, and they're the ones God wants to protect. He does, he, as James says, he, he knows how to distinguish, how to keep separate those who are due punishment from those who are due rescue. He's rescuing those who are believing. He's leaving the rest to fend for themselves. All right, now to the last question of the night, and that is, what is this provision and where are they going? Well, first you have to read one passage out of Isaiah. In Isaiah 33, one, it says, woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him, as soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. All right, I'm just giving you that opening because it sets the scene for this chapter. This chapter opens with a discussion of a destroyer being destroyed and ceasing to be. And if you were to go further in the chapter from there, it describes the fear that the world will know during the time of tribulation. And that, I believe, is an allusion to what we're studying here in chapter 12, Satan being set up for his own destruction, but it's not yet. And then you get to verse 14. And it says, sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with the continual burning? All right, who are they? The godless in Zion, the unbelieving Jews, right? They didn't flee. Next verse, he who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they would hold no bribe, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil, he will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given to him, his water will be sure. The remnant will see a provision in an impregnable rock, okay? So that's an allusion or a reference to this place of protection that God will make available to the remnant of Israel for the second half of tribulation. Micah 2, another prophet of the Old Testament, gives us the name of this place. Micah 2, 10, he says, Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction, If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. All right, that's the preface. Micah saying to the city of Jerusalem, you better get out of here because the uncleanness is bringing a destruction, referencing Satan. And he said, but they won't listen because if a man had come in here telling lies saying, I can talk to you about wine and liquor, that's all they need to stick around. It's a way of showing the depravity of that group of people and their unwillingness to hear truth, all right? And then, verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob, and I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it so their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. All right, so that's the remnant now being moved out of the city. The contrast as it was with Isaiah, same here. The bad guys sticking around for the destruction and the good guys getting to leave, okay, so to speak. I told you Micah gives us the name of the place that they're actually being held. But you're wondering, well, I don't see it in there. Well, it's because in the Hebrew it's evident, not in the English. It says there, sheep in a fold. That's where they're gonna be held. Literally, it's the word in Hebrew for sheep pen, and it's a way of describing how this collection of the remnant will look when they're all being held together, kind of hemmed in, penned in 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 a form of protection. The Hebrew word for sheep pen, basra. Basra, and basra, as it turns out, is a place in the wilderness not far from Jerusalem. And here's a map, and that's where Batra is from Jerusalem. It's in present-day Jordan. You might know it by its modern name, Petra. And Petra fits the description of this place to a T. Petra is on top of a high mountain. It's a Nabataean ruin, and it was once part of Solomon's kingdom. It's where he had mines at one point, uh, copper mines. Uh, 
It's a place of wadis, which are uh, desert canyons. Fast-moving water will sometimes uh, move through these canyons and run down sides of mountains. Uh, you may, it's best known for these carvings like the treasury and some of the other buildings uh, that are carved out by the Nabataeans, very impressive structures. But getting into the main site of Petra requires walking through a very narrow canyon called the Sikh Canyon, famous, made famous by the movie Indiana Jones when he rides on the horses through that space, right? And the Sikh Canyon is a high, high canyon wall, very narrow structure. You have to walk for several miles to get in. And it's not the only one of its kind. This area is, is particular, particularly unique in that it's an open area when you get into it, but it's, it's very impenetrable if you don't have modern equipment or you know, aircraft. If you have to walk in or ride in on horses, it's a very easily defensible position because of the way it's set up. And it's prone to flash flooding. It's not a very wet climate, obviously, but if water comes, it comes in buckets quickly. And when the rain is channeled down these wadis, it's extremely dangerous. And it comes at you, I mean, it can be bone dry, and then a minute later, the water's over your head. It's just an immediate rush of water down the hill. In fact, in Israel, on the Israel side of this, they have a mountain range on their side that's similar to the one that's in the Jordanian side, and you'll see these signs out in the desert. I don't know if you can read that. It's not a joke. I mean, you think when you see it, well, that can't be, you know, happening. Last year, right before the tour I took last year, they had a flash flood in the Negev, and it killed two Israeli soldiers on training maneuvers out in the desert. I remember the, the newspaper reports when I was there. And this is pictures from that actual event last year. So it goes from dry to a torrent of water, and that looks, doesn't look terribly threatening there, but imagine all that water in a space that's you know, 15 feet wide and you know, 100 feet tall, and it suddenly, it's gonna kill you instantly. So that would seem to suggest that what the chapter's telling us is that there's an attempt by the enemy to use natural powers over the world to, supernatural power over the world, to bring water and just flood the whole of them as they walk into that area, and God finds a way, obviously, to save them because he's not gonna let that happen, all right? So the Lord allows a remnant to remain in this place, in Petra, for three and a half years, and as Micah said, they'll have food, they'll have bread, they'll have provision. They just hang out there for three and a half years in the presence of the servant, but he can't get to them, safe and ready for the end of tribulation. So they've come to faith, they didn't die, and they're gonna live through the whole of tribulation, and the second half, when the world's really having trouble, they'll be fine. And in fact, we call the second half of tribulation great tribulation, not because of any judgments God brings, but because of what Satan does. All, all the judgments, by and large, have finished, except for the bold judgments, and those don't happen until the very end of the seven years. What makes the second half so bad, then? What he does against those who are still on earth. But not all Jews are in the remnant, and therefore not all Jews are gonna show up in this three-and-a-half-year safe haven. So that leaves one more verse. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the dragon realizes, well, I can't touch the remnant, it's in protection, but I gotta attack something. So John says he goes after the rest of her children. Now, if the woman is Israel, what are her children? Well, logically, it would be Jewish people, obviously, but if all the believing Jews, the remnant, are in Petra, then by definition, these are the unbelieving Jews. Those are the ones who keep to the commandments of God. That is, the commandments of God refers to the law, to Moses. They are Jew, they are holding to the orthodoxy of Judaism. They aren't, for example, worshiping the beast, as we'll hear later. They retain their Judaistic views, contrary to what Satan wants, which is what makes them an enemy of Satan. But they don't know Jesus is their Messiah yet. So they hold to the commandments of God that makes them a target. They are the rest of Israel's children. But in a spiritual sense, there's another half of this, which is those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, that cannot mean believing Jews because we just said the remnant is in Petra. So what are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus if they're not believing Jews? Well, they have to be believing Gentiles. That's the only thing left. So what we're saying is, he knows who his enemy is. And at mid-trib, when he comes down to the earth with an intent to, to persecute, he's got 
essentially one main target, believing Jews, they're off limits, now where does he go? Well, I guess I'll go to my unbelieving Jews and my believing Gentiles, those who are keeping to the commandments of God, which is one group, and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, which is another group. They become the martyrs of the second half of tribulation. And in both cases, God preserves some, which we'll see as we finish through the rest of the book, okay? So what we learned at mid-trib, the second detail of mid-trib, first one was last time in chapter 11, our detail for tonight from mid-trib, is that mid-trib is the moment that Satan loses access to heaven, sends him to earth with an even greater desire to persecute, and as a result, God has to protect the remnant of Israel in order to make sure that his promises to Israel are not void, that Israel doesn't disappear from the face of the earth in a believing form. Meanwhile, that's what sets off the great tribulation on earth, Satan going after anyone else he can who is not his. All right, that's what we learned tonight. Let's pray, let's do a little Q&A if you're interested, and finish up. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the quick uh, but challenging teaching, I pray, Father, something to give us things to think about as we know our world is approaching these events. I pray that uh, we would be inclined as we hear these things to speak to people boldly about the days to come and about Christ himself. Father, if the world is gonna become such a place and so soon, who are we to remain uh, hesitant now to share the good news? And we ask for courage to do that. And we thank you, Father, for our night of study. Send us back in weeks to come to hear the rest. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, if you have to go, as always, you're welcome.